This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. If you've been following any of what has been going on in the world of commerce, in the world of shopping, in the world of all that kind of stuff, you will understand that we are in changing times. More people are buying more stuff online, which is translating into fewer people going to malls and buying things or fewer people going to some stores and buying things. We are in a transition period here. It's not to the point where nobody's going out, but times are changing. Well, this, of course, leads to some questions. We have a lot of stores, a lot of shopping plazas, a lot of shopping malls around this area that we don't want them to fail. They are important to this community. So what do you do to try to keep them going, to try and bring people to the area or to use the space they have. What do you do? Well, the mayor of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, is going to be bringing forward a motion at council tomorrow that would allow developers potentially to build new housing units on land that has previously, as I understand it, he'll explain better in a moment, been zoned for commercial or some form of commercial, specifically, potentially, malls or mall areas. Places with huge parking lots and big space. Well, maybe now the answer is let's put some housing there. Condos, apartments, whatever it's going to be. Maybe this will allow for projects, allow for developers to come up with something and allow for people to be in that area. Use it for some good reason. Let me bring on the mayor of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, whose idea this is. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thanks for doing this tonight. Good to be with you again, Scott. Now, is this a, it's an interesting idea. Is this something that you were sitting at home one day having a coffee and this popped into your head? Or did some developers come to you and say, Mr. Mayor, we'd like to be able to build on this site. What Can we do that? How, how did this come to fruition? Uh, I was having a tea, actually, that popped into my head. And, uh, you know what, uh, Scott, I, uh, I would say that, uh, you know, my experience uh, with the Canadian Urban Institute and my kind of travels around the world, uh, kind of, you, you know what's happening in many other places where they've mixed uh, commercial with uh, with residential on very you know large developments and and so when I start hearing about the you know reassessments that we're having in terms of the malls and the declining retail space that they're uh, they're able to offer up because their demand is way down, it just occurred to me that that was a you know a real opportunity for us to look at some of our city challenges, which is housing. Uh, you know, especially affordable housing or social housing, and uh, and the kind of space uh, you know that's available on uh, on mall properties, large mall properties that uh, could be potentially utilized for other things other than just uh, commercial retail, and uh, maybe we could introduce uh, some some residential or maybe some other uses in terms of entertainment that uh, that could add uh, value to the mall, add value to the location in terms of bringing more residents to that location. And help us with the urban sprawl issues, which, uh, you know, is one of our, our ongoing challenges is to contain our kind of growth and development all the inner city. And uh, here is another clear and present opportunity to have that conversation with mall operators to see if they can uh, help us with some of our challenges and we can help them with some of theirs. So you can see this happening across the city in the suburbs, and I mean, potentially, I guess, in the downtown too. I mean, could you see could you see something like this at Jackson Square as a building up or, or is this more for the suburban yeah. kind of thing? No, I think I think both. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it lends itself more to you know locations like Library Mall that have you know huge parking lots. Uh, if those parking lots are be fully utilized for for shopping experience, then uh, that frees up a whole bunch of potential development land. But that does not to suggest that uh, the downtown locations could consider going up. 
uh, over and above their uh, their mall location, uh, you know, in the same kind of way, to add more residential capacity at the same time, bring more customers into their mall area, <laughs> into the retail space that's uh, that's left. So uh, I mean, it, it lends itself to you know both of those scenarios, and uh, I would I would say though that it probably at the outset lends itself more to you know large tracks of Eastgate's uh, the the Lybridge malls. Those locations where you have huge, huge tracks of, uh, of parking space that's no longer required, and uh, you know what what does that afford in terms of opportunity, and how could you then put that into good, sensible use for the mall, uh, and bring uh, you know some of our affordable housing, social housing, or just housing challenges uh, to the fore in terms of developing there. I was shocked recently when someone told me that Lime Ridge Mall is the single largest taxpayer in the city. Is that correct? Absolutely true. Absolutely true. But they're also going through uh, reassessment. So as their, uh, you know, as their mall space uh, empties, they, uh, they are allowed to ask for a reassessed uh, evaluation. And uh, the reassessments that they're, they're actually getting are much lower than they were previously. So they would, would still be the largest taxpayer in the city of Hamilton. But uh, would be giving us, uh, you know, less than what they were giving us previously but as a result of the assessments. But it still suggests how important it would be to keep some place like this going and keep it alive. Oh, absolutely, and that's uh, I think that's part of the whole challenge as well. This is, uh, you know, I've, I've had that conversation with uh, the mall managers. In fact, that they're uh, they're also exploring, you know, what uh, what could they do to uh, to to kind of repurpose and rethink their mall space. Uh, right, you know, bring uses there that uh, that will attract people at the same time generate the kind of revenue to keep them all going. So uh, it is a, it's a symbiotic relationship at this point, and I think uh, we need to kind of proactively sit down with these folks and have a more detailed conversation about what our our challenges are and how we uh, how we can help one another. Uh, you know, have them all succeed, and at the same time deal with some of our you know more challenging housing issues. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Mayor Fred Eisenberger about a proposal, a motion he's going to be bringing before council tomorrow to possibly allow for residential building to be done, apartments, condos, low-rent housing or subsidized housing uh, on commercial properties, malls, things like that. And Mr. Mayor, you mentioned just before the break that when you talked about housing, this it sounds like what you said is this could be housing, this could be condos, there could be maybe some mixed use. Could you see this as being a a whole thing that if you were not just the, the uh, not just an apartment building but smaller shops, can this? Be, what exactly are you are you envisioning? I guess is the question for what this could be, or is that sort of an open ended question right now? Well, I mean, my, my initial thought had to do with housing, but it, that's not exclusive to that. Uh, you know, there are potentially other uses that uh, malls could be looking at, uh, whether it's entertainment, uh, you know, theaters, uh, you know, something that they used to have on a regular basis, don't, don't have so, so much anymore. Uh, you know, I, I, you know I, I, I always wonder why we don't have the, uh, the kind of uh, you know, iFly. You know what iFly is, that kind of indoor parachuting. And, right, okay, yep. Uh, In Mississauga, they have one. Yep. Yeah, they have wanted that kind of entertainment uh, as part of uh, kind of mall operations. But my predominant thought was really about, uh, you know, one of our challenges is to provide affordable housing or, or and, and to curb urban sprawl. In other words, to grow our city on services that already exist. Malls are already serviced to, uh, to you know, large capacity. 
they're, they're, they're being challenged right now in terms of online banking. I mean, Amazon and all the other online services that are out there, whether it's Walmart or anyone else, is really putting a dent into the retail uh, store capacity requirements, and that uh, directly affects them all. So how do we, uh, how do we take that, uh, that problem? Uh, and, uh, and then to use that to uh, to do some re- inner city redevelopment on those mall locations that uh, could be both entertainment, but at the same time look at some of the residential uh, challenges that we're facing and curbing that urban sprawl that is going to cost us more money in the future. The reason I asked about the entertainment and that you followed that up is uh, several months ago, it was Councillor Donna Skelly when the whole idea of a new arena was being discussed, who said, hey, maybe we could put an arena up in that area around Lime Ridge Mall. I is, that, is that something that would be too big a look at right now? Are you talking about something that, again, would be a smaller entertainment and much more housing? Or is it, as I say, is it really open to anything? Yeah, so by, uh, you know, just specifically on the arena piece, I mean, they, uh, when it was first proposed, they were actually trying to consider the uh, Bequested Park as a location. And I, uh, you know, I think that's... Uh, that's an odd starter, in my view, but there are there is a you know a significant amount of space uh, just the other side of the highway where you know the McDonald's used to be, where there's uh, currently a a, uh, a drive-through car wash and uh, I think Suds, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. That whole space back there is quite large and could could easily accommodate uh, an arena if someone wanted to, to build a arena. So uh, you know what? Uh, that's that's certainly a possibility as well. And if you look at Eastgate right now, uh, Eastgate, the the whole location where Sears used to be, and that parking lot that's associated with that, wide open right now. I don't know if they have plans in, in, in the short term to to accommodate that. But if if someone wanted to build a a, a mid-sized arena, uh, those locations would be ideal. Now, theoretically, and again, I don't know, I mean, you've brought this up, it's, it's, a, it's a starting point, certainly, as a discussion point. Theoretically, would you be thinking that any shopping area that has parking and has space could be open to this? If, For example, if someone in the Meadowlands decided in the uh, area there, Costco decided, you know, we have some land in our parking lot, we want to put up a condo, yeah. is, is it, would it be open anywhere, or is it just the places yeah. that would be struggling, as we described them? No, no, no. I think it'll be open anywhere. I mean, uh, you know, if it's a good idea in, uh, you know, in any mall location, uh, it uh, it makes sense because the services are already there. And so, if you're actually bringing more people as customers to a a retail location, that's a that's a positive step. But that's a that's a pretty common experience in uh, many other places in the world where they actually combine the two. That uh, you know, the retail is on the ground floor and the residential is up above it. Uh, that is not uh, uncommon at all globally, and certainly it's something that we could look at as uh, as potential additional opportunities for anyone that's uh, that's operating a retail location. You know, those air rights have value, and uh, if there uh, if there's a, you know kind of value in using that going forward, uh, that would be a wise step for them to take. And we just have a minute here, but one of the things you alluded to and you specifically said is that a lot of the infrastructure is in place. The idea behind this is that you are going to have the roads, public transit, those kind of things already in place. It's not an additional build to get the place serviced. Exactly, exactly. That's a, you know, that's a costly thing for developers to do. Development charges are significant when that happens. And uh, we don't have to add anything new. They're all there. Uh, the transit terminal is, uh, you know, at, at Leverage Wall, for instance, is already in existence, comes right into the heart of the uh, the mall itself. Uh, the same is uh, same applies at Eastgate Square, in fact. And uh, in all the sewer, underground services, water services, hydro, everything is already in place. All you need to do is hook it up. 
Mr. May, you said you were having a tea when you came up with this idea. Uh, it sounds yep. like you may need to have another tea to get to get yourself better. I'll let you go and do that, but I really appreciate the time today. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Scott. Anytime. Uh, sounds like uh, our mayor may be having a, a cold. It's, it's like that. It's brutal out there right now. Everyone's going to have a cold. Uh, really interesting idea. I, I don't. It's going to need some discussion for sure. I don't think this is something you jump into, but it's an interesting idea. And again, I go back to that one point, which I was blown away by, that Lime Ridge Mall right now is our single biggest taxpayer in this city. Who I would have never guessed that. I would have thought of the steel mills or someone else. Lime Ridge Mall. Even if you're not a fan of the mountain, even if you're not a fan of shopping malls, you look at the tax dollars alone and you say, if that place is bringing more tax dollars into the city, and heaven knows we need our tax dollars, not more tax increases, just tax dollars because we want business. If that's doing that, we cannot let that die. And if this is a th- way that you can build it up again, whether it's an arena or housing or whatever else, it's worth talking about. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the show, we were talking about Tim Hortons. Because there was an expert in the food industry was explaining that Tim Hortons fell from 4th to 50th on a survey of admired Canadian companies because, in his words, in his view, they had abandoned their Canadianness. They've kind of lost that Canadian ethos, he thought. They've, they've stepped away from being Canadian. And so people have started to feel that. That was his belief. That was his argument. Well, we have just learned that today, well, we learned today that after 50 years of being in its current location, in Oakville, Tim Hortons is going to be moving from that headquarters in Oakville to downtown Toronto. Its 400 employees will now be working, well, soon enough, out of the Toronto Exchange Tower. Why are they doing this? Well, here's what the president of the company said. We're going to take advantage of everything Toronto has to offer to make sure our employees are happy about the move. We're going to train them in innovation. We're going to train them in culinary. We're going to train them in everything that's very easily available in Toronto that perhaps they can't find in Oakville. Ultimately, I think everyone will, everybody will understand the main reason we're going out there is to understand what our guests want so we can provide for them as quickly as possible. Is this the right move or is this something that is bound to only further cause erosion of this sense of being a truly Canadian company as our guest said last night, Marvin Ryder is from the Groot School of Business. He is uh, he is a man who knows his way around the Canadian economic and business scene. I bet he's also a way who knows his way around a Tim Hortons. I don't know that, but uh, Marvin, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure. I'm actually in Toronto speaking to you. I, I thought I'd come check out the new location just to see <laughs> if it met my, my seal of approval. And? It's good. It's a lovely building to be in. <laughs> well, I, I'm sitting here looking at this, and and. I, I expect they've given this a great amount of thought. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that they're not doing this for reasons that they feel are very good. The one thing, and there's a few things that jump to mind, though, in an Internet fully connected world where mm-hmm. everybody at their desk is connected to the whole world and you can get all this information, what is there in downtown Toronto that you could not get and could not learn and could not do in Oakville, which is not exactly in the middle of nowhere? Mm-hmm. So in addition to the quote that you gave uh, to set up this segment, uh, in another quote I saw today, the, the head of Tim Hortons said, we're coming to Toronto because first, many of our partners are based in Toronto. So as we're looking for food services or as we're looking for coffee or whatever it happens to be, we're sending people into Toronto to have meetings. And at some point they say, what's the point if we're going into Toronto, why don't we just move there? 
But one of the other thing they said, and this was a little more curious, said that um, we're coming into Toronto because we want to better understand our customers. Yes. And uh, you and I had a little chat about this and said, well, wait a minute, you know, their, their customers for a great part of this were more suburban and even rural. How are you going to learn anything about this in Toronto? I think what he's trying to say is, unlike your guest from last night, that what Tim Hortons really feels they need to do is become a little more urban friendly. You know, here I am in Toronto. I look around. I can see all kinds of little coffee places, not just the Starbucks, not just the McCafes, but other little hipster hangouts. And no one would ever accuse uh, Tim Hortons of falling into that vibe. I think they want to come in and see that kind of urban coffee experience. And I'm even going to go so far as to say it would not shock me if within a year Tim Hortons has its own kind of Timothy's Cafe or something to that effect, kind of a more hipster vibe to play only in the urban areas. Because what's the bottom line for them is they're losing sales. They are not growing their sales base, and they're specifically not growing it in the cities. You can argue it's because of all the choice, but they just don't seem to be attuned to that market. So let's move into Toronto and see if we can meet some of these people. So is part of this, in addition to being there and to be able to try and learn that market, is it also to be seen as now more of an urban business? Well, I think that may be part of it. Now, uh, Scott, I should tell you, people ask me, what's this mean for Oakville? Once upon a time, if we go back six, seven years ago, the, uh, uh, the Tim Hortons headquarters in Oakville had nearly 800 employees. Today, it's down to 400 employees. And if you looked at those 400 employees, 200 of them live in Oakville, but the other 200 commute to the Oakville location from Toronto. It's going to be a bit of a loss for uh, Oakville, no doubt about it. Uh, they are keeping the Tim Hortons University there on Dorval Drive, so that's not going to go. But it's not exactly like those citizens who live in Oakville are going to give up. They're going to now start to commute into Toronto and vice versa. The people in Toronto won't. So I don't think it's going to be a big loss for Oakville, but it is a change. And, it, and they just feel, for whatever reason, that to be recognized as an important company, they need to be on Bay Street, part of the financial uh, quarters headquarters here. And because they've gotten smaller, uh, they're not using their current headquarters well. There's a lot of wasted space. So instead, they'll sell that, make some money on that. And for Oakville, that space will be filled in a heartbeat. It's a prime location, and that campus will be turned into a much more productive use. So may have six months to a year for everything to sort out in Oakville, but Oakville will survive nicely. Tim Hortons, on the other hand, as you mentioned with your guest last night, uh, this survey of respected brands going from number four to number 50, we had another story today that suggests there's even more reasons to think they're going to go from 50 to 400. They just can't seem to shoot straight on that front. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. We're chatting with Marvin Ryder about the move that was announced that Tim Hortons is going to be moving its headquarters after 50 years, moving your headquarters from Oakville to downtown Toronto. And Marvin, just before the break, you were talking about how they're going to you, you, how they're going to try and probably break into the urban market, maybe have smaller coffee shops do something yep. to hit that kind of market. Now, here's the thing that I I'm interested about that because all of Tim Hortons that I can recall, every one of Tim Hortons commercials that I can ever remember is a dad or a mom in a hockey arena or someone on the farm, or it's always been not urban. It's always been very much the outskirts or the, the people in Canada who are not walking. I've never seen a Tim Hortons commercial that I can recall in a Bay Street boardroom. 
And it, it seems like this may be a completely different target that they are trying to put on to get that market. I mean, is that fair or am I, is that no, not no. what they've been going after? No, I think, that's a, I think that's a very fair assessment. But I think they feel that as we look at things, and for instance, there's a series of stories from the Hamilton Spectator this week about the most recent census data. As we look at the census data, Canada is urbanizing. More and more people are flocking to bigger and bigger cities where once upon a time, back at the end of the First World War, 80% of us lived on the rural side, 20% in cities. It's the other way around. And getting worse, more and more people are going to cities. So I think they feel they ignore that market with peril. I want to keep in mind that they would not be promoting Tim Hortons. So that bread and butter Tim Hortons, that one that you just talked about, will still be there. But I think what they feel, they've got to come up with something. This is not unlike McDonald's, who a few years ago said, we'll still keep the standard McDonald's with the golden arches, but they introduced this concept of a McCafe. And in cities now, McCafes, not just in North America, but around the world, are very popular places for urban people to congregate. And they don't think of themselves as being in a McDonald's. They think of themselves being in a, in a cafe. So I think that's part of it here. I, I don't want to write it all off. I think some of it is to, to cash in on the land values in Oakville, a uh, place that they had that was not full. Probably they got a sweetheart deal on this space downtown Toronto as well. And so they put it all together and said, here's a couple of chances to both make some bucks, but connect better to the audience. And yet we go back to this poll that we've been talking about where right. people have said that they are feeling somehow they're falling in the estimation of the public. Right. Is that sense of change? You're discussing how they want to change a little bit and how they want to grasp that audience. Is that changing not what's actually hurting them in the first place? Right. So God bless your, your guest last night sharing his point of view. Let me just give you my point of view. That study that has talked about how they fell from number four to number 50 was done in the third and fourth week of January. And you need to remember what was happening in the third and fourth week of January. That's where I'm going to call them the rogue franchisees of Tim Horton said, we're not going to give people the minimum wage, or if we give them the minimum wage, we're going to take away some of their benefits. And a lot of Canadians said, wait a minute, you know, that's not what we thought Tim Horton stood for, this kind of petty, petty arguing back and forth. And I think that is what colored it. Now, today, in addition to the story that we've been talking about, the move to Toronto, there's another Tim Hortons story that apparently the supply chain of Tim Hortons to get goods to franchisees is a little tapped at the moment. So for franchisees in Kitchener, Waterloo, and Guelph, they've been sent a letter saying that they should go to Walmart to go buy some of the supplies they need <laughs> until they can fix the deal. Now, I'm telling you this story because this is not an unusual thing. And when you have 4,500 locations to get a supply chain to supply all of them is a tricky business. And periodically, for whatever reason, you run out of napkins or you don't have the stir sticks. And sure enough, the franchisees work with the franchisor and they backfill, get them over the hump. What's the difference? It's a franchisee who called somebody like the CBC to tell them this story. The franchisees are purposely setting out to embarrass Tim Horton's head office. And what you've got basically is a war going on between two people who should never be fighting. The more they make this war public, the more they make us, the public, are we siding with the head office? Are we siding with the franchisees? The more this is no longer the Tim Hortons you know, and that's going to drive their ratings lower and lower and lower. Moving to Toronto has its thing, but I, I don't think that's going to hurt them. But if they don't solve this franchisee war and put it to bed, this company is doomed. It's absolutely doomed to drop even farther in these ratings. Last thing, uh, you talk about the hipster audience in these small coffee shops or something yeah. that they may want to. Is that is that going to work 
And, and the reason I ask that is because it seems that that audience has specifically decided they would prefer to go to the independents or the smaller places that are not the big corporate place. They're willing to spend five bucks for a cup of coffee as long as it is a small independent store. Can Tim Hortons crack into that? Well, first, you'd have to make sure your locations look nothing, nothing like the existing Tim Hortons. No glaring fluorescent lights, no, you know, bright yellows in the design. You're going to have to make it look just as trendy and just as hip. Now, if I can give you a parallel, you might remember a story from two years ago about Starbucks. In urban environments, Starbucks decided that at about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, they were going to add beer and wine to their menu. That people were coming out of their little 500-square-foot condos wanting to go out someplace, maybe have a cup of coffee, but maybe have a glass of wine, and they weren't considering Starbucks at all. So at night, again, they turn down the lights, they bring in some fancy little finger foods, and they bring the wine out, and it's generated money for Starbucks. Starbucks has been able to find a way to make it work. I think for Tim Hortons, you can't just change the lighting, though. These would have to be standalone locations like McCafe's. I would not be surprised to see them announce some tests of these in places like Vancouver and Toronto. Do I think I'd see them in Hamilton or Brantford? No. And I don't think I'm going to live long enough. But in some of those bigger cities, I wouldn't be surprised to see them try something like that in the next year. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate the time. Travel safely. Enjoy your Tims on the way home. Thanks for doing this. Anytime. Bye-bye now. That is uh, Marvin Ryder. I, I agree with that last thing specifically. I don't expect to see a Tim Hortons urban coffee shop experience anytime in Hamilton. It's either Tim's or something else here in Hamilton. But I don't even know if it'll work in Toronto. I don't. I really don't. But I, I do agree with the concept that they will give this a go. How do you not? How do you not try and tap into the bigger markets as things are changing? I just don't know if it's going to work. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. We've heard of people doing stupid things at a zoo before, right? We've heard of people doing things that you just can't quite understand what was going through their mind or what wasn't going through their mind. Or more properly... They were probably just ripped out of their gourds. They went to the beer tent at the zoo, had way too much to drink, and then decided, I got a good plan. I'm going to jump into the lion's pen. I'm going to have a little cuddle with a grizzly bear. I'm, you think I'm being ridiculous. These are things that have happened. The guy who wanted to go for a polar bear dip with the polar bear at a zoo. These are not intelligent people or... or more sadly, these are people who perhaps are going through some sort of horrible thing in their life. Nonetheless, not a good plan, not a well-constructed intellectual plan to leap into the pen of a creature that eats living other creatures to survive. We know these things. I actually went today to try and find the funny idiot zoo stories couldn't find them because all the idiot people at the zoo stories generally end up with a horrible outcome or something terrifying that they just barely escaped from. Uh, probably the worst one, and I don't mean in the outcome, I mean as a reason for doing this, was the guy in India who told the rescuers afterwards that he jumped into the lion pen where he was mauled almost to death, but he survived, thankfully, 
that he was so tired of his wife's constant nagging that he thought this would be a better option. That is a bad relationship when you've decided that getting eaten by a lion is better than one more day of listening to your wife. I think both of you may want to work on that relationship a little bit. Nonetheless, so I'm looking for these funny or odd or not traumatic zoo stories. And the reason I'm doing this is because I came across this sign that was sent out on social media, which I assumed was fake. Did a little research on that. Apparently not fake. Apparently this sign was not fake. It came from the San Francisco Recreation and Park Department. And Ben, I'll bring Ben into the conversation here for a second. Ben, there is a, it's a picture in the background. There is a pen of bison, buffalo, a languid creature more often than not. Not a creature that is, except when they're stampeding across the plains, not a creature that does much except just stand there and eat and chew its cud. So what does this sign say? Now, before I tell you, last thing, almost in every case that I can think of, a sign is put in place because someone has done something that requires someone to be told, don't do that again. No one puts up a sign saying something that no one has ever done before. Unless it's so obvious. This is not obvious. This is a sign that reflects that someone, anyway, that someone has done something. And here's what the sign says outside the bison pen. Do not give the bison psychoactive substances. (laughs) And so I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, that sounds odd. (laughs) What exactly is a psychoactive substance? It's exactly what you would think it is. It's like ecstasy. (laughs) And other hallucinogenics. And I'm telling you, I probably should be sad for the bison that someone would think, hey, I got a great idea. Let's give the bison some ecstasy. And a a deep, dark, horrible part of me thinks, I kind of want to see what a bison would look like on ecstasy. What would a bison do if it was strung out on ecstasy? You'd have like a rave going on in the bison pit. First of all, who thinks of this? But I actually want to see a strung out ecstasy laden bison. I want this sign to be taken down and some guy go from the rave to the bison pit and give them this. Who would who would have thought of this? And again, what are, any Ben, any good guesses of what a bison, how a bison would act if it was high on ecstasy or having a, a hallucinate? Wow, dude. I'm just picturing it standing there, but you know how normally you only see like the dark parts <laughs> of their eyes? It's just this white ring around, <laughs> eyes wide open, just staring nowhere. Just Do not go. give the bison psychoactive substances. Yeah, it is... Um, the bison going all Timothy Leary on a hallucinogenic. You find out that bison have a certain love for Pink Floyd. Yeah, they're dropping ecstasy and listening to the Grateful Dead. This is in San Francisco. Oh, what that that is. Um, I mean, it is in San Francisco, so I suppose we shouldn't be shocked about anything. Nonetheless, do not give the bison psychoactive substances. I should probably feel very badly for the bison, but I am just so intrigued. I wish they had a video. There had to have been video of this on some security camera. I want to see that. I'm sure the zookeepers weren't thrilled about it. How do you control the bison when they're doing that? Anyway, 
There is your uh, idiot zoo people of the day story today. Don't do that. Still better than jumping into a lion cage because your wife is nagging, but don't give the bison ecstasy if you go to any zoo. That's your advice for today from the Scott Radley Show. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock, the Hamilton Bulldogs kick off their Ontario Hockey League semifinal series with the Kingston Frontenacs. And it is, uh, this is going to be a very interesting series because the Bulldogs have this year gone for it. They have traded some of their future. Not all of it. They've traded some of their future. They have loaded up. Interestingly, so did the Kingston Frontenacs. These are two teams that were very close. Five of the six games they played this season were separated by one goal. Four went to overtime. The Bulldogs loaded up. The Frontenacs loaded up. Will be interesting to watch. Uh, Joining me now, we're pulling him out of a team dinner. Let me get to this if I can. Can't get him to come on right now. I'm right. on. I'm oh, there on. you go. Okay, sorry, yeah. I got the right button. The owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs, who I say we pulled him out of a team dinner, Michael Anlar. Thanks for doing this, sir. My pleasure. I hate to point this out. It's been a while since you've had the chance to enjoy some kind of playoff run like this. Number of years. <laughs> must be yeah, must be nice to have it again. Six, seven years. Yeah, must be like nice. Yeah. yeah, it is nice. It feels great and Nice to have butterflies in your stomach this time of year. Well, I think the last time, if I'm right, the last time would have been 2011, and you guys lost in Game 7 of the semifinals, but it was a long playoff run that year, like this year with a lot of close games. Yeah, against Houston. Randy Cunningworth was our coach at the time, and then right before that with Guy Boucher. Yes. The Dallas, Dallas, uh, the Texas Stars, yeah. Are you, uh, Michael, are you a fan of really close, exciting, nail-biting games, or do you prefer to be sitting in the box watching 8 nothing leads by your guys? Um, it's, a lot, it's a lot less stressful, especially <laughs> after a, seven, you know, a game best of seven, that's for sure. But, uh, no, I, I guess I was, certainly from the fan standpoint, it's, uh, it's, it, we've had some exciting games, and certainly Niagara didn't, uh, I think it was a, Three three overtime games, so uh, that was uh, that was uh, that was that was good for the fans. From your perspective, having reached the third round now, is this season a success? Like, at what point do you look at this, regardless of what happens, and say, you know what, I'm okay with where we got to, or is anything short of a championship not a success? Wow, uh, that's a good question, uh, and I think you can only say that once the season is over, and then you assess it. But, uh, you know, when I look at our team right now, and we're actually at, over at the, uh, at the keg and water down here as a team dinner, we've had the last couple of rounds. We're a little bit superstitious uh, to start the, the next round. So that's where uh, when the keg being a great sponsor of ours. It was uh, uh, here in Hamilton on the mountain and in water down. We're, uh, uh, so we're, I look at these, these, these uh, young men uh, and, uh, I'm just so proud of them. I'm just so proud of how they behave off the ice as well as how they've been behaving on the ice. Um, I know the owners of Niagara after the tournament was over, after the series was over, uh, you know, approached me and said, you know what? I said, you guys have class. You guys are a class act. The way you conducted yourselves on the ice, no cheap shots, et cetera. And they wished us the best the rest of the way for the rest of the way. So, you know, I look at the guys, how many guys have been signed this year, uh, two NHL clubs. Uh, I look at some of these, you know, guys like you know, local boy Isaac Nurse, who's who's you know, was drafted in the 11th round, and 
and uh, it would be a shame if he didn't get drafted to the NHL this year. And so you look at the successes, uh, and um, so from a development standpoint, what Steve Steos has been able to do and his coaching staff, I'm, uh, you know, I guess, I guess. If if it were to end now, I would I would deem it a success. But uh, the competitive nature in, our, in us, we, we have a team. We, we we have a team that's as good as any team in, in the CHL, in my opinion. It does. I, I bet. And I again, I hate to uh, bring up a sore point or rip a scab off, but when you look at your team and how you've been playing, and you finished off two pretty good teams in five games, they've been close, but they you finished them off in five games. There's got to be a part of you that is looking back at that bid for the Memorial Cup that would have been this spring potentially in Hamilton and said, you know, this would have been a pretty good year to have that tournament here. Um, yes, but at the same time, it, it's kind of it's kind of good. We 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 created even more credibility uh, with the with the uh, with the OHL and and the CHL and and uh, to show that we're a first class organization. We said what we were going to come out to do and and. Uh, uh, I think at the end of the day, it would have been it would have been uh, a lot of work, um, but uh, you know that doesn't mean that we we won't get another chance in the in the future. Let's look ahead just a bit. I know you don't want to look ahead past these playoffs, but one of the the tricks in the Ontario Hockey League and junior hockey period is it's it's doable to be really really good for one year. You can go all in and like you guys. Well, you didn't go all in, but you went in for it. You went for it. But then there are a lot of teams that do that, and then for the year or two after, they are nothing because they've sold everything away. The trick in the OHL is to not have the huge waves of up and down and up and down because there are a few teams that have been managed to be successful consistently. Are you confident that you guys can do that, that this is not going to be the one year and then two years of struggling? Um, There's no doubt that that's that trend because of the ability to... uh at the trade deadline to uh, give up a whole bunch of second round picks in order to, uh, to get that extra players so it beefs up the other team uh, for the following years. Um, but it's not only that, I think we, we've created an environment uh, that is attractive for young men to come and develop their game uh, in Hamilton, uh, both, uh, you know, both in Ontario and south of the border, we hear it from from player agents, uh, which obviously integral part as as counselors for these young men uh, in terms of, of of where to go. Uh, they have choices uh, if they're not drafted, um, and and I think we've 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 created Steve Steos and 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 his group have created an environment where it's attractive to develop. We've done a great job in developing these young men. Uh, so, you know, we've had, uh, we, when we took over the Belleville team, uh, we pretty much have more than doubled our scouting staff. So we're in a lot of rinks, minor hot, you know, minor midget games, uh, all across Ontario, uh, in the U S, uh, as well. And, and, uh, I think part of it is recruiting is, you know, uh, is, is good recruiting as well. So I think, I think we we're on the right track as a hockey club, and I think next year, you know, even though we seem to, you know, we we got some great, great uh, uh, talent uh, in around the trade deadline, you know, and local talent like Camano and and more, and and uh, certainly, uh, you know, Robbie Thomas, uh, you know, it costs it costs, but uh, 
we feel that we're we're in a great position uh, not only this year but years to come. Because if you're going to be one of those franchises like London, and they're always the one that everyone holds up as the example. I would think there's probably three. There's the, the idea of developing players. Guys want to come where they can be better players and get a chance to go to the NHL. Uh, there's winning games, which is important, and there's just the overall facilities and coaching and, and experience. And is, is, Are any of those more important than the others? Uh, I, w- I would think that they all, they all play a part in the decision-making uh, process, and I think they all, they're all critical parts uh, uh, as well. Um, and there's no doubt London, London has been, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the standard, uh, and, uh, no doubt we try to take a page out of London and try to emulate and, and maybe find other ways that differentiate ourselves from, uh, from, uh, what the Knights are able to offer. Like, like, like team dinners at the kick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Paid for by the owner. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, um, you got, and I only will keep you. I know you have to go speak to the guys, so I'll only keep you a couple more minutes. But you have had so when you're talking though about not having these giant rides up the hill and then these craters at the end, like we do see with some teams, you've had some great crowds. You had 6,400, I think, a Saturday ago for your playoff game. But I have to believe that having a crater, like if you were to do it that way, you can't really build anything. How do you, so? I mean, do you see it that? A consistency is important to try and keep those crowds at some kind of level that you can build on, or or is it possible to build if you just have one great year followed by some poor ones? I, you know what, I, I think this is not. Um, I really can't tell you because I haven't been in that in, in that scenario yet. But there's no doubt that you know a winning environment gets 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 that that uh, civic pride, uh, and there's no doubt that that day you know five. Five busloads of Niagara Ice Dog fans came over, and and uh, they were, uh, you know, uh, and, and there was, you know, six thousand Bulldog fans in, in the house, and it was, it was, it was, it was loud, and they were, there was a lot of pride, and and part, you know, part of winning is, is uh, uh, you know, I guess winning breeds uh, breeds uh, filled seats, I guess uh, as well, so, uh, but. Uh, it's exciting hockey, and 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 these guys, a lot of these names that you see on the ice today are, are names that you're going to see uh, in the NHL and in a few years and be able to identify with. And that's the beauty about junior hockey here. It's exciting hockey, and and uh, and you're, you're up up close and personal with these young men. Just before I let you go, I was chatting with the mayor last hour here on the show. He's bringing forward a motion tomorrow at council that would allow for some development, housing, or whatever, on some other places in town. Uh, have you heard anything further? Is there are there any new developments on the idea of a new arena? Because I know last time you were on here, we were chatting about that. Yes, I believe so. I, I think the I, I, and I did uh, before I, I I went into the dinner. I actually I had your show on. And I got uh, uh, the second part of, of uh, uh, your interview with the, with Mayor Eisenberger and uh, did hear some of the the, the talk about so with respect to Lyman Jamal and and. Uh, so it's very encouraging, very progressive, and uh, and certainly uh, looking forward to uh, to the next steps to 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 uh, to make it even more exciting for our fans you're and, and st- other and Hamiltonians. You're still ready to go on that? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Michael Anlauer, so now. owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs. I'll let you get back and uh, give your pep talk or whatever it is to the or just finish your steak i don't know which it is to the players but anyway uh good luck tomorrow game one tomorrow michael enjoy that tomorrow and good luck thanks so much and see you there
That is uh, Michael Andlauer, owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.